Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Good morning. So good to be with you. I'm Robbie Itterberg, one of the pastors, if we haven't had the chance to meet. I'm so happy to be able to share the Word of God with you as we continue this morning with a sermon series that we've called Love Not Fear. And we're in this series because fear is a reality that we are always living with. But it has certainly, in the last year, been very particular reality as we've lived through this pandemic together. Fear is, is something that is an internal reality that comes from so many circumstances and wells up from within us, but it's also an external reality that seems like is always being pressed in us from the outside, from various sources, be it in-laws or politicians or advertisers or bosses. Fear is constantly being used against us to manipulate us, to move us, to, to change the course of our lives. And so the question for us in this series is how do we navigate the reality of those fears? And how do we navigate it well when those fears come from within and from without? A couple weeks ago, we talked about how so often we fear the circumstances of our lives and want those to be changed. But there are times where Jesus moves into our lives and he wants to show us that there are some things that we're not even aware of that are more dangerous, that that we should be afraid of, that he came to deal with first. And so it helped put our fears into perspective. We also talked last week as we celebrated the resurrection, that very first Easter. We talked about how in Jesus' resurrection, he conquered the ultimate fear for humanity. He conquered the fear of death, the fear of judgment that happens after death, the fear of the uncertainty. That, and as he conquered those fears, it makes all of the other fears in our lives seem small and insignificant. And it also gives us confidence that any fear we face can be conquered and overcome as well. And so we kind of talked about our fear of the circumstances and getting those in perspective. We talked about our fear of death and judgment. And today, we're going to talk about our fear of living. We're going to look at that through a story of the disciples, which I think is a story also for us where they were invited and we're invited to take steps out, to take risks, and to truly live. And so we're going to jump into that story in John chapter 20. And I'll encourage you to follow along on the screen if you'd like as we jump right into God's word together and allow it to speak to where you are this morning. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And let's pray as we move into God's word together. Heavenly Father, in this time, in this place, we invite you to be moving among us. May your spirit that you give so freely. Be the one leading our thoughts. 
be leading us in our heart and our soul and be shaping us for, from within so that we can move through fear and that we can really live. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So this story that we just read takes place on the evening of the very first Easter. John says it was that first day of the week. And so it actually is helpful to remember what has taken place over the the previous days to help really set us up to understand the significance of what we just read. And so if we think back, this was Easter Sunday evening. And so let's go back to Thursday. And on that Thursday before, Jesus and his disciples had secured the upper room, we're told. It it was a guest room of a local Jerusalemite where they went and they celebrated the Passover feast, what we've called the Last Supper or the First Communion, and they celebrated that together. And in that room after supper, Jesus, we're told, washed the disciples' feet. And in that, he was telling them, I'm giving you an example to go and do the same sort of thing. And if you do it, you'll be blessed to go serve. He taught them about life, about living lives of love and power and obedience. He taught them and told them about the Holy Spirit whom he would send that would guide them through this life, guide them into all truth, would be their source of peace in and through every situation. He told them how the world hates him and was going to crucify him. And that as his followers, the world will hate them too. He prayed for them. And he actually prayed for us even, for all of those who would come after them, who would put their trust in Jesus. He prayed that we would be one as he and the Father are one. Jesus longed for all of his followers to be unified, not divided. And then they left that room, they went to the garden, and we know that that's where he was ultimately betrayed, where a, a whole horde of armed guards came up and they took Jesus away, and at the same time, the disciples took off because they were afraid. Jesus was then subject to a series of kangaroo courts, these trumped-up charges that on Friday ultimately led, we know, to his execution his crucifixion on a cross, and then his burial, and then Saturday there was silence. And then Sunday morning, that Easter Sunday morning, we're told that that the women, Mary and Mary, ran to the tomb. They found the stone rolled back. They found the tomb empty. Jesus had risen, and actually they even encounter the risen Jesus who tells them to go and tell his disciples that he's going to meet them. And so Peter and John hear this, and they run, we're told, to the tomb. This is the same John that wrote the story that we just read. They run to the tomb. They find it empty. They find the grave clothes that had wrapped Jesus' body, but they don't find Jesus. And so curious and wondering, they go back. Later that evening, as we get to our story today, we're told they're gathered again together with the disciples, but this time gathered behind locked doors. And it just made me wonder, which, which door was it? Where were they? Could it be that they actually had gone back to that upper room? Gone back to the place, that guest room where they had been celebrating the Passover, that same room where they had encountered the love, the service, the incredible teaching, the truth of God through Jesus, where they had heard of of life and, and the Holy Spirit that was going to come? Could it be that they had gone back to that very room, but this time the doors being locked, they staying inside for fear of the Jewish leaders? I mean, these were the same leaders that had just orchestrated Jesus' execution. 
And here they were, the closest followers of Jesus, I'm sure, asking themselves the question, wondering what was going to happen to them. Probably terrified every time they heard steps past the door, any time they heard a commotion of any kind outside, wondering if the next sound would be a knock on the door, armed guards there then to take them away. And so they lock themselves in this room because they're afraid of what's out there. And I was thinking about this and wondering if anyone has ever been there, if you've ever been there. Have you ever been afraid of what's out there? of what might happen if you step out into life. It it reminded me, actually, of the movie Frozen, and I'm actually really familiar with this movie. If you're not familiar with it, I've seen it a lot of times, and it's actually not just because I have two daughters. I actually love this movie. So if you haven't seen it, go check it out. It's great. But in this movie, there's two main characters, our sisters, Elsa and Anna. And unfortunately, their parents die because it's a Disney movie. Because that's what happens in Disney movies. Parents die. So it's, it's really not good to be a parent. Your time is short in a Disney movie. Sorry. But, so the parents die, and Elsa is supposed to take the throne, but she's terrified. Because she has these magical powers that, she, that nobody really knows about, that she can't really control. And so she's been locked away for years, hiding in her fear. Meanwhile, her sister Anna has been locked away, cooped up in the castle as well. But her longing and question is, when is life ever going to happen? Am I going to be able to get out and really live? And so the day finally comes, Coronation Day, where Elsa is going to be crowned queen. And so the doors of the castle are thrown open and people are coming and going and there's decorations and there's all this commotion. Life is beginning to happen and Anna's reaction to it is just sheer giddiness. She's just dreaming about the party and the dancing and the chocolate and who she's going to meet and how she's going to get married. And so she's like ecstatic. Well, Elsa's reaction is in her room looking out as life is beginning to happen and she's terrified. Terrified that she's going to be found out that someone's going to see her. She's terrified of embracing what is next for her, embracing life itself. And if you haven't seen it, there's a parody of a song that happens on Coronation Day in that movie, a parody that was made by the Holderness family. You can go find them on the internet as well. They made a parody song called Vaccination Day instead of Coronation Day, reflecting on where we're at together as a society. And in this song and in this video, the husband or the dad of the family, he is Anna. He is ecstatic. He's dancing around. He's clicking his heels. He's in the streets, you know, twirling around and swinging on lampposts. And he is so excited because he can't wait to get out because it's vaccination day. And the the wife, the mom of the family, she's inside the house, hiding behind the curtains, looking out the window suspiciously. And as they say, even in the song, she actually liked the quarantine and the isolation. And I actually think that even though it's it's funny, go check it out, they've tapped onto something that I think is profoundly true and maybe for some of you and some of us is actually real or will be real in the coming days that as more and more people are getting comfortable with resuming life, with resuming activities, you may not be feeling comfortable at all. And I'm not talking about the normal, appropriate level of concern and discomfort because we're not out of the woods yet. I mean, I know a couple people who are close to me that I care about deeply, connected to the church, that are in the hospital even now struggling and fighting against this virus. 
So we're not there yet. And so there is an appropriate level of concern for where we are today, but we are starting to turn the corner, starting to look to a time where we're going to emerge from this. And so what I'm talking about is the lasting impact of trauma. What I'm talking about is the fear that has taken root inside of some of us over the last year, a fear that if we allow it to continue to hold on to us could keep us from actually living again. And this is the kind of moment the disciples find themselves in locked behind that door, afraid to live the life which Jesus had given them to live. And and for us, it's not just about the pandemic, though I think that's very real right now. There's a lot of other things in our lives, a lot of other reasons that today and well beyond today into the future that we may be afraid of actually living. A lot of other things as you think about your life. Maybe for you, it's actually the wounds of the past that maybe you haven't locked yourself behind a physical door, but the the doors of your heart are tightly locked and there's nobody coming in and coming out. There there is no space for new relationship, not a vulnerability and authenticity because you're not going to get hurt again. Are you really living? Maybe for you, it's actually about your, your past failures. And you don't want to end up there again. You don't want to go down that road. You don't want to have any of that exposed and out in the open. And so instead of taking a risk, stepping out, trying something new, inviting people to know you more, it's all about resistance, walls, self-imposed obstacles, and self-fulfilling prophecies of your own failure. And so maybe it's a a fear that you're not going to have what it takes to actually pursue the passion or the dream that's living inside of you that actually you don't even really talk about. Because it's there, and maybe it feels like this internal nudge, even the calling from God, this passion or dream that, man, you could step into it, but it would require this huge change of direction for your life, but it would also mean truly living, and yet there's so much fear that you're not going to have what it takes. And so rather than stepping in, reaching for that dream, no, no, no. Limitations. I don't know, I'm not going to step into that. I'm going I'm to keep these guardrails. I'm going to stay in this lane because this lane is comfortable. Over here, not very comfortable. This lane, it makes, I, I feel safe. I feel in control. I feel like life, I can manage it over here. If I go that direction, I don't know. But are you really living? Yeah, sure. It's providing a lifestyle. It's getting you from here to there. It, it, it may be giving you some things that you like, but are you alive? And there's so many other ways that I think we can lock the doors of our lives, but Jesus is saying, go live. And it was in that place of fear behind those locked doors that Jesus came and stood among them. And what did he say when he got there? You scaredy cats. Didn't I tell you to get out there and live? What are you doing here? No, he didn't say that. He didn't condemn them. He didn't bring a word, a word of shame upon them. He came into their place of fear and he spoke these words, peace be with you. And, and this was a standard greeting at the time, but in this passage, it's not just a standard greeting it, because he repeats it twice. And so he clearly means something more than just to be a, a, a greeting. And it's not just a, a wish. It's not a wish that they're going to have some sort of steady, calm, you know, cool life without conflict, difficulty, trial, any of that. No, this is actually a blessing 
that he wants to give them, and a longing that he has that they would have the fullest good from God that is possible in their lives, that they would have everything, the fullness of what God intends for them, but they can't have it unless they're truly living because they can't experience the fullness of God in their hiding. They've got to live into it. And so he's saying, may you have the full life God intends for you. Peace be with you. But he doesn't just give them this, you know, pep talk and and a wish to go out and live. He actually gives them two things that are so important. He gives them evidence and power so that they can actually go and live. He gives them evidence evidence that he is, in fact, who he appears to be. We're told that he comes, and and, and rather than just telling them not to be afraid, go out there and get them. Instead, he comes, and he shows them his hands and his side. I mean, this is really a profound moment if you picture this scene. They're in this locked room. Remember, those doors stayed locked. They weren't letting anybody in because they were terrified of what's what's out there. And now Jesus, resurrected Jesus, passes through the door, like through the door. It's kind of a cool thing if you could do it. But he passes through the door and he stands among them. And so he has this new resurrection body. And yet, it's not like he's just some ghost, some, you know, some sort of disembodied being. There's something profound that his body is a resurrection body in continuity with his physical body. Because he says, hey, look, my hands, look at my side. And actually, in the next passage, just after this, he actually offers to let them touch it. He's touchable. He can pass through the door, but he's touchable. And all of this was evidence that Jesus was giving the disciples to say, hey, you, you heard this morning that I was risen from the dead. Here's the proof. I'm here. I'm alive. It's me. Because he wants them to believe. He wants them to believe that he is who he says he is because he wants to jumpstart the life that he still intends for them. Jesus didn't give up on them because they were hiding in fear. He still had a plan. And evidently, they got the jumpstart that they needed. Because when we look over history, something clearly happened to these disciples. Because this is John writing by his own admission that they were terrified of living. So they were hiding behind locked doors. They're probably talking about how they could slip out of town without being noticed and so that they don't end up just like Jesus. And so they're probably trying to figure out how they can get away safely. And John's saying, we were terrified. And yet, that same group that's living in fear, hidden and locked away, within a few hundred years, has changed the world. Within a few hundred years, the Roman Empire, that at this time was part of crucifying Jesus, was the military power of the world, crumbled, not because some other power came with military victory, they were overtaken from within by the Christian faith. Even though that same Roman government were were persecuting Christians for years and years and years throwing them to the lions, using them you know, as lampposts to light up their streets at night. They were lighting their bodies on fire, crucifying them on crosses like Jesus. I mean, they, they were brutal, persecuting the Christians, and yet within a few hundred years, it went from persecution to embracing the Christian faith. Something happened to that terrified group of disciples. What happened? If it wasn't resurrection... If it wasn't Jesus coming and standing right in their midst and in the midst of their fear, giving them the evidence to believe and to go out, what was it? Because something happened that they then went out boldly, courageously proclaiming the risen Jesus. He was giving them evidence. Jesus was giving them evidence to believe 
And John actually says very clearly that the entire biography he's written of Jesus' life is intended for the same thing for us, that we too would believe. He says in chapter 20, verse 31, that I wrote these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I wrote these things. It's all evidence so that you don't have to just believe, but that you can hear, you can see, you can understand, you can have evidence and believe that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you too can have life. See, because Jesus has, has a plan for them. And he has a plan for us. And this, his resurrection evidence was the jumpstart to that life. Because he says to them, here's the life that I, I have for you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. It's a commission. It, it's a command. As the Father has sent me, says Jesus, I am sending you. And so it begs the question, how did the Father send Jesus? You know, what was that like? What was the character of that? Who did he go to? What was the goal? You know, what we see as we look at Jesus' life is that as the Father sent him, he was sent in total vulnerability. He was born as a baby in a manger subject to, to the limitations, the vulnerability of this tiny physical body, dependent on his parents to take care of him. He came in humility. Jesus wasn't born into luxury and power and prominence. He was born into a poor family in the backwoods. He came as a servant to all. But particularly, we see him going over and over again to those who are rejected and outcasts and marginalized within, within society, those who are beaten down by the religious structures that are holding them down, those who, who are desperate. We see him come dependent upon the Father. Jesus says very clearly that, that I only do what I see the Father doing, and I only say what I hear the Father saying. And so Jesus is saying, I am constantly living in daily, moment by moment, connection with the Father so that he is fixated on the will of the Father in every moment of his life. So he comes as, as vulnerable, humble servant, dependent upon the Father. And so who does he go to? He goes to those who are rejected and outcast and marginalized. He goes to those who are sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, those living in darkness, in sin, in rebellion from God, turning their backs on him, those who are consumed by fear. Those are the ones Jesus goes to, whose lives are out of control and a mess not neatly put together. And it begs the question, if, if this is how the Father sent Jesus and Jesus is sending us, are we going in the same manner, in the same vulnerability, in the same humility, in the same service, the same dependence, and are we going to those whom Jesus went to? Are we going to those who are overwhelmed, overcome, overburdened? Are we going to those who are outcast, rejected, marginalized? Are we going to those who are other than us or only those who look like us? Are we staying in our safe little space? Are we going to those whose lives are a mess, even if their mess makes us feel un uncomfortable because they are living in sin, in fear, and in death? See, Jesus is commissioning them and us to life to real life, to a fullness of life, to a life filled with meaning because it is caught up in the great story of God that has Jesus right at the center. This great story of God that, it, that is over all of history. 
The story that, that acknowledges that, that humanity has rebelled against God, that is living in rejection and, re- and turning our backs on him. And yet, God doesn't turn his back on humanity. Instead, he moves closer to us even as we reject him. And so the Father sent his Son to humanity, into the heart of it, so that ultimately through Jesus' own life, his death, his resurrection, that we could be brought back to God and we could be given the gift of new life, of real life. Are we going to live it? And part of that real life is being caught up in this story, which is the mission that God started with Jesus. And we see that that's what he's giving, this commission, because of what he says in verse 23. He says this, if you forgive the sins of anyone, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now, we, when we read this, we've got to be careful because on one hand, we could, we could certainly try to interpret this in a way that gives us a whole lot of power and authority that, oh, so I get to decide who's forgiven and who's not. Great. Then you're in, you're in, you're out, you're out. Okay. You, ooh, not you. Yes, you. No, you. You know, everybody makes the team except for you, you, and you. You're cut. Right? It could give us all sorts of power. But that's absolutely not what it is intended because over and over again affirmed throughout all of the scripture is that only God can forgive sins. And specifically, if we think about it, clearly only God can can forgive the sins that have been committed against him. Because it's the same in our lives and our relationships with one another. If somebody hurts you, if somebody does something wrong to you, I can't just say, oh yeah, you're forgiven. The offense, or they're forgiven, the offense can only be forgiven by the one who's been offended, the one who's been hurt. And God has clearly made the way for that forgiveness to be offered, for the breach of the relationship with him to be healed, for reconciliation to happen, for all of the rebellion and offense against God. It has been, he has already done what's necessary through his son to heal that divide, to offer the forgiveness. And what he gives to us is the opportunity, the honor of being the mouthpiece, of going with the same message that Jesus himself took, that there is salvation, but it is in God alone. It is not based on your own effort. It's not based on your achievement. It's not based on your good enough, good, being good enough. And so what that means is that your failures, your wounds from the past, whatever keeps you locked and captive in fear no longer has to hold you captive. That there is forgiveness and there is new life. There is the fullness, the fullest goodness of God available. Peace be with you. And peace begins with forgiveness, because that's the starting place. It begins with the reconciliation with God. It begins by reconnecting us with him. It begins by allowing us to resume the posture of of dependence upon God for our healing, our hope, our joy, our salvation, and our lives to be filled with meaning. And so we go with this message that yes, forgiveness is possible and God has already done everything needed for you. It doesn't matter what's in your past. But the other side of this is also true when we look at the the completeness of what what Jesus has said here. We also go with a warning that if you want to live on your own terms, if you want to continue to decide for yourself what's right and wrong, what's good and what's bad, if you want to continue to allow yourself to define for you how you're going to live, if you want to continue to, to lock the doors of your lives and stay hidden inside, then there isn't forgiveness. 
Because forgiveness requires a recognition and acknowledgement of the need because forgiveness is something given as a gift, not something grabbed hold of and obtained. And so to receive the gift, we have to turn away from that life. We have to turn away from ourselves, turn away from our fear, and move toward him and recognize our need. And when we do, then we too can receive the power that he intends for us to have to live the new life that he wants to give. And that's what exactly happens in this passage when we look at verse 22. It said that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't just tell them to get a life. Didn't even tell them to go live the life to go do the, the thing on their own, to live that new life. He didn't give them a, a set of new tasks that they could then use to prove that they're worthy of life. No, he gave them life, and then he gave them evidence, and he gave them power to live that life, power through his Holy Spirit. And this image points us back, actually, to the very beginning, to creation itself. If we think to, to Genesis chapter 2, if you read verse 7, it, it said this, that, the, that God had formed Adam from the dust of the earth, and then it says, the Lord breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That, that the Lord God breathed, you can picture it. It's a, such a vivid image. The man formed out of dust the breath of God breathed into his nostrils that this body becomes animated life. In creation, life came by the breath of God. And in this moment, in this story that we read today, new creation, new life happens by the breath of God being breathed into these disciples. And that word breath or wind is the same word as spirit. He breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit. As Jesus breathes on them, he gives them the Holy Spirit he gives them everything that they need to live, to get out of those locked places, those places where they're living behind the doors of fear, to live the lives of love and meaning and purpose and power, to go and proclaim the hope that they have in Jesus Christ and life that is real life for others. He wants to breathe that same power into you to live that same life. And the question that remains for us is will we really live or we allow fear to keep us locked up? Will we really live lives that can change the trajectory, not just for ourselves, but for others around us who are also living in those places of fear with locked doors around their lives? It's the question for us individually. It's the question for us collectively as a church. Individually, it's who in your life needs to hear that there is another way of living that's not captive by fear, but that is available peace and new life through the forgiveness that is offered by Jesus. And who is it as we think collectively? To whom else can we go as we think about emerging from this pandemic? Where can we go that the Father, as the Father has sent Jesus, is he sending us? To those who are hurting, those who are living in darkness, those who are living in sin and rebellion, those who are living in fear and death, so that we can offer new life that is real life in Jesus' name. Pray into this for yourself. Pray into this for us as a church. Because as the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus is sending us to live real life. Let's live it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that 
in those times and places of fear where we've locked the doors that you don't just let us sit there, but that you come to us in that place. You speak the, the good news of peace, peace with you, the fullness, the goodness of life as you've intended it. And so, Lord, we, we confess, we acknowledge that we have allowed fear to confine us. We want to break out of that. Breathe your spirit on us anew that we can be sent, Jesus, as you were sent by the Father. We can be sent with the same message. We can be sent with the, in the same vulnerability and humility to serve, to bring the hope of life in Jesus' name to those who are hurting, living in sin and darkness and death. Will you move among us that we can be your people in Jesus' name? Amen.